I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The Athletic. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC, brought to you by The Athletic UK. My name's Sammy James, and welcome to the podcast today. It is the Thursday Club back with you, and we're going to be looking at Fulham's last gasp draw at Arsenal. I say it like Fulham were the team that got the point late on. It very much wasn't the case. Four games in a row where Fulham have cost themselves points late on. We're going to analyse that one and just ask why Fulham seem to fold late on in games. Um, It's a pretty depressing situation, which I'm sure you're fully aware of right now. Also, we're going to discuss the European Super League, but we're going to ask the question, would Fulham have said yes? It's a big question. I know some of you have been discussing it on Twitter this week. Would the Khans have jumped at the opportunity to join the now kind of infamous ESL Uh, we'll discuss that later in the pod as I said it's the Thursday Club today so I've got Fulham's writer for the Athletic Peter Rutzler hello Sammy how are you doing fine thank you and as ever Jack Collins hello listeners hello Sammy hello Peter how are we doing good thank you sporting a wonderful red and black uh, Fulham GMB shirt today Jack you've often got good Fulham clobber on but I think that might be my favourite of your collection I think this might be my favourite too I wrote an article recently for uh, the Football Shirt Collective and they asked me what my favourite shirt was and this it was this and and the uh, sort of 92-93 Fiorentina these are my favourite pieces but this is this was given to me by my uncle um, which is always nice it's one of those shirts that, that feels right and I wanted to wear it to Wembley but it was white wool so I was like oh gonna have to wear something different um, but yeah probably my favorite piece of the lot just before we start uh, just to say that you can get the athletic for one pound a week if you go to theathletic.com forward slash Fulham pods uh, and Peter the coverage this week on the ESL has very much dominated uh, the chat. We'll come on to some of the Arsenal stuff later. I think we should start with some of this ESL stuff. It has been a mad week in football. And for once, Fulham doesn't feel like at the epicentre of all our thoughts when it when it comes to football this week. But of course, they were one of the 14 clubs that came out in the Premier League and, and denounced the whole thing. It's all fallen in flames. Um, and, and Twitter... Gets a lot of stick, but this week has has been a goldmine of content. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, normally not much of a fan of Twitter myself, but it was just electric. I mean, even just from a from a news perspective as well, just how fast things were moving, how broad and how many different you know people it brought into the equation. You know, all factors from, of society. We even have the royal family coming out and condemning it, like it was. Um, <laughs> It was crazy. It was a crazy, crazy few days. And obviously there's still much more to come in terms of the fallout and, and the, the repercussions for, for the clubs, which I'm, I'm sure we can, we can talk about later in the pod. But it's, yeah, it's been a, a dramatic few days, quite extraordinary, really. I don't think we'll see something quite like this for a while, you know. Um, and it, it, it's, it's, it was such a shock that this thing that everyone's sort of been talked about, this sort of 
what was seen as sort of a paper tiger for so long and suddenly just come out and from nowhere in the middle of the season and and, and dropped uh, onto all of us and uh, and uh, thankfully thankfully it looks like it's not going to go ahead in any form now with everyone withdrawing so yeah crazy crazy few days and uh, great to great to happen of course with you know from a full perspective you're standing from the sidelines but um <laughs> you know in the week where I'm, I'm moving flat I think you're moving house it's it's, uh, it's been busy <laughs> I mean, Jack, what we can be always thankful for is that our friends up the road saved football, didn't they? They they were the ones that broke it all apart and we can forever be thankful to Roman Abramovich and his morally beautiful team for saving football for us. We, we, we will forever saviors. be in their debt. The great saviours. <laughs> we, must, we must thank them. Look, I mean, let's not get it twisted. Like the protest at Stamford Bridge was was excellent and was, you know, a part of the, I think, driving force behind this. I don't think it was the driving force. I think someone compared this to a bank robbery, right? It's 12 blokes about to get ballied up outside a bank. And, uh, and their family are all around them pleading. And I don't do this, don't do this. And it's like, oh, the family caused this. But actually what they're not talking about is the fact that there were cameras on them and the news networks going, if you grab that bank, you're going to be arrested. And, um, and, and that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's good. nice to say like, oh, yeah, it was the family input that really changed their minds. And maybe it was, maybe it was. Um, and I do think that football fans, you know, as, as a collective this week have been absolutely brilliant. Um, and, and it was, you know, a united front in, in so many ways. It was what what people talk about that kind of put aside the tribal differences for a second and and, and deal with it and try not to get into the one-upmanship and and the divide and look there's always going to be an element of that isn't there there's always be like my club pulled out before your club um but but there is kind of a, a sense that everyone got the job done this week came together and and managed to to at least make people question themselves whether that is the defining blow whether it's the players coming out whether it's UEFA being like, well, what are you going to do? Because you're not going to be able to be represented in any of our competitions. Um, you know, all of those things together are, you know, are, I think cause this to, to fold on itself. But no one should underestimate the work that the fans had. Yeah, I, I mean, completely. And Jack, I guess I saw you posting something from Versus earlier, which was talking about ways that fans can pick up on the success of kind of... <laughs> destroying the ESL within 48 hours and what else can be fixed in the game from um, fan ownership to ticket prices and, and most importantly I think to the stain that racism has on our game and I guess from mine and your perspective is that we have been here before from a Fulham perspective with, with ticket prices. And whilst that was very much a, a Fulham issue, that is also a wider football issue. And, you know, we found that Fulham fans did mostly come together for the protest that we did a few years ago against ticket prices. And Fulham fans have been famous for doing protests over the years, back to the cottage, um, no to Fulham Park Rangers. And I guess this is once again, a reminder that fan power is important. And whenever we, feel to ourselves that actually fans have absolutely no influence in this game we do we just have to be mobilized and we have to be prepared to fight for the things in this game that we no longer want yeah absolutely and look we've done ticket you know ticket prices that that is a, a stain that's not going away i think you're right i think the if we could harness this energy to try and uh, genuinely 
eradicate the racial abuse that goes through this game, if we can take that and be like, look, if you can sanction clubs for leaving and sanction players for leaving a, a, a tournament, how can't how come we can't have you know lifetime bans, UEFA competition bans for players who are found to racially abuse others? Why are people getting ten game ban minimums, you know, and and not and being able to roll back with them? Why are clubs not being deducted? Why are clubs not being thrown out of Europe? Why are fans not getting lifetime bans? And if we can harness that energy for for something that's not only a stain on the game but a stain on society, then then I think that would be a force for good next. But you're right; it shouldn't stop here in in any sense of, of football. Kickoff times, um, you know, equal funding and visibility for the women's game to you know to drive that up and and to drive it into uh, a new era. Given that it was banned for 50 years and we're still feeling the repercussions of that the fact that you know we look at things like Harvey Elliott and and the the tribunal process for that and and why clubs aren't rewarded for bringing through talent that needs a look I think the you know TV rights and broadcast deals need a look in terms of distribution and how that pans out across the whole pyramid there's so much more to to this than just getting rid of the Super League and and it's easy to say oh we won we saved football, um, and 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 I know that a lot of that was done slightly tongue in cheek. But I do think there's a point where this might be the high water mark. This might be the point where the tide rolled back a little bit. And and if we can use that energy and use that kind of design, look, the UEFA's Champions League reform isn't great. Like let's let's make no bones about this, right? It's not it's not oh we killed the monster and let's leave the devil. It's you know you got to you got to look at all of these different elements of things and, and try and change them for what people want to watch and what people want to see and, and benefiting the game for fans of it rather than executives. And and once that happens and once we can start to direct this fury continuously at problems that still exist, I think we'll have a better game. I think one of the things that really doesn't sit right about some of this whole process is how UEFA and, and FIFA have sort of adopted a position where they feel like they're in the vanguard and leading the good guys and you know they're on they're on the right side of things and when you know for so long they've overseen a, an organization that has been you know shambolic to be truthful I mean we've got a world cup coming up in 2022 in Qatar where the construction of these stadiums have resulted in the deaths of, of, of many many workers and um you, you that's that's the the, the point, and, and Jack sort of raises it there. We, it's, it's, I think it's, it's been fantastic the way everyone's come together, and it just shows the the power and the influence that football supporters have uh, on their own game. And you know, it'd be fantastic if that energy could be turned to these other key issues, and and that it could be a driver for for further change because there are major issues that haven't been addressed um, and that need to be addressed going forward. Hundred percent. And just thought I'd raise a point from. I was reading Football 365's winners and losers yesterday from from this saga. And one of them was Alexander Seferin and, and UEFA. And it was like, look, for now we hold our nose and go into battle alongside the lesser of two evils because my enemy's enemy is my friend. Yes, it's galling to hear Seferin talking like him and UEFA, the fan's friend who only wants what's best for the little people. But we can hold feet to the fire later. And then I thought that was important. It was like UEFA, UEFA are strengthened by this. They have to take that strength and now push it back towards the clubs who were, you know, the fact that this Swiss format has come in is by the big, tw- you know, the biggest clubs, these big 12, the dirty dozen, as many are calling them, who were twisting their <laughs> arm in order to get coefficients into the Champions League. And, right, and they bowed to those reforms because they thought that it was the way to appease those clubs. Those clubs weren't appeased. They went rogue anyway and now have been kicked back. And there is a point moment now where UEFA can go, hang on. 
all right, you wanted that. We gave you that. You didn't accept it. You walked off. We're taking back the, you know, the, the things we gave you. We're taking back the concessions we made because you've thrown those concessions in our face. Um, and I think that has to be the next step. Yeah, hundred percent. That's that. That was the thing for me that, and I think what perturbed football fans the most was the fact that the 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 order of merit that football works on the pyramid was under threat, and it's such a mad thing, right? There are so many powers in the game that keeps the rich at the top and and stops the the lower teams ever. Can you actually imagine Fulham winning the Premier League in your lifetime, Jack? Yeah, hundred percent. Why not? Can you actually, though, in seriousness? Well, well, no, Sammy, I can't. But at the same time, if you'd asked me in you know 1998 when we were floundering, at the, you know, yes, we were doing okay. We were, we don't think we'd get to a European final. I probably would have said to you no. So, like, things can change but, quite quickly in the game. But my point is, is that I guess what it killed was fans' ability to dream. Right? Yeah, exactly. It killed. It killed the ability that one day, you never know, I don't ever think Fulham will win the Premier League in my lifetime, sadly. I don't think Fulham will qualify for the Champions League in the next generation. But one day, Fulham might do a Leicester City or might do another European run. And what this Super League would have done was was kill that for fans like us and, 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 and kill it for fans of Swindon Town or of Huddersfield, right? That they one day might be able to go to the top of the game and again, and whilst, again in Huddersfield's case well we'll just caveat well that. yes yeah but I guess that was what was so perturbing for so many football fans was was the the fact that you could no longer dream yeah 100% 100% that's it it's the ability to, to rise up and down on merit look do I think it's going to change a whole lot do I think if you had a Super League format in the Champions League right and it was it was 12 teams from across Europe who earned their place at the top and they were only going to have 12 teams in it. I don't think people would be that perturbed. I don't think people would be like, nope, we're not doing that. We're actually making the Champions League smaller is a terrible idea. I, I, I don't necessarily think it is. Like Conceptually, the actual system and structure of a Super League it, it was fine. It, I mean, it, I, I don't personally like it because I, you know, I'm a Europa League ultra, as you know. But like, <laughs> I, I do think it's it's fine if that's what you want the Champions League to look like. Then then fine, as long as it's on merit. That's your call. Like, you can you can have your own opinions about whether that is what. What I think gores people is not only the the audacity of people to be like, no, we deserve a spot at the table for the next 30 years. In, and I said last night to someone on, on Twitter, in the 80s, the Super League would have had Nottingham Forest, it would have had Hamburg, it would have had, you know, Stour Bucharest. And, and, and now those teams aren't anywhere near what is Super League. So the goal to be like, no, we're going to be there for the next 30 years. We will. No, no, no doubt about it. Is It was almost... On top of the fact that Tottenham and Arsenal aren't there now, like, like <laughs> and, and it's, it comes, you know, there, there's so much been said about American owners and, and the fact that the Glazers drove this and John Henry and not understanding the concepts of the English game. I think what upset me the most was Perez and Agnelli because theoretically they should understand they've grown up in the systems that they they went to and and Agnelli said a comment I think when he went into the Serie A meeting and. They said, if you do this, they'll only these three teams will win the Serie A for the next 80 years. And he went, well, they have already. I said, no, they haven't. Like, tell that to any of the teams that, you know, that have won own a Scudetto. You know, Hellas Verona have a Scudetto. Like, tell them that. But also, it, you know, it's Atalanta beat Juventus at the weekend. And Agnelli has said in the past, he's like, is it right that Atalanta should get into the Champions League based on one good season? He'll be like, 
Yes, of course it's right. That's how football works. Like that's how sport works. The, the point is you do well and you are rewarded for it. And, and to take that away just seems so, so like, and, and you know, and antithesis to the, the actual spirit of the game. And I think that's what wound me and a lot of fans up the most. Well, bring me on nicely to our American owners, Peter and the Khans. There was a great piece in The Athletic this morning by Stu James, which was trying to work out whether the other kind of 13, 14 clubs in the Premier League would have said yes to the offer of a Super League had it been offered to them. And, and you saw inconsistencies in maybe the words of Steve Parrish, who's been uh, the Crystal Palace chairman, who's been massively in the media over the last few days against the ESL, yet only a few months ago was wondering why the Premier League should be propping up the EFL earlier in the pandemic, where we had all of those problems and whether the Premier League would kind of trickle down the money to, to the Football League. And we have American owners. We have owners that are in the NFL system, almost exactly what the Super League kind of wanted to replicate itself on. No, re no relegation, no promotion, the same 32 teams season after season. And I guess the question is, we'll never know, but we can debate it. Would Shade Khan have been tempted by this offer? It is. A, it's a really good question. It's an interesting question. And I don't think it's one we could ever probably know the answer to because... Uh, without Fulham actually being at, in that position, and I, I think when you when you look at it, I think any club in the Premier League, if they're in the top six or in this so-called big six or claim to be, as seeing as some aren't actually in the top six at the moment, um, I think they would be sort of taken by this idea. I think from a financial standpoint, they would be. Um, but and and as you mentioned, you know, Shahid Khan and, and the Khans, they they own and run the Jacksonville Jaguars, so. The American system of a, of a closed shop is not unfamiliar. Um, and, and also, as Jack mentioned, you know, it was the American owners that were driving it. You know, Joel Glazer was the, was the name on every statement in a Glazer's statement on the Liverpool website. I mean, it's just, it's just extraordinary. But you know, it was John Henry. It was, uh, it was uh, Stan Kroenke. It was uh, Joel Glazer who seemed to be the, the, the key uh, proponents of it from, from a British football side. So it does raise the question, you know, American owner at Fulham, would they follow the same way? What I think when you look at Shahid Khan and the way he sort of conducted the way he speaks, there is a difference, I feel, between how Shahid Khan operates and, and those American owners. They are very much backseat operators. Um, you don't hear from them. They never front up. They never, they never speak uh, publicly, uh, which, you don't, which you don't get with um, Shahid Khan. He does speak publicly. And yes, you could point to the PR side, but it's clearly something he wants. He wants his voice out there. Uh, and that is quite a stark contrast in that sense. Um, but, you know, I mean, when you look at the Premier League as a whole and in terms of how they how they think and how they work, I mean, you only have to look at the pay-per-view system, which was voted through by the 19 clubs. It was only Leicester City that, that didn't, that, you know, voice their opposition to it, um, which would suggest that when it comes to improving revenues, they're more than happy to do so without necessarily considering the wider whole. But if they... if if, for instance, Fulham did want to do that, say they were top four, uh, you know, for a sustained period and decided they were Super League worthy, um, it would end up being rank hypocrisy. I mean, you, you look at what Shahid Khan said about Project Big Picture and his, his programme notes. He spoke uh, about the importance of ambition and the importance of the pyramid and how it would run con uh, counter to his own values about you know, his own backstory of uh, with Flex and Gate and, and going from relatively nothing to building up uh, a huge multi-billion pound um, empire. 
Um, so from that, I think there's, there's two ways to look at it, but you know, it's, it's, it's very, very interesting. I, I, and because of the American side, you think maybe they could, but it would certainly be contrary to the way he's presented himself anyway. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I think there's, it's easy to say, you know, he sits around the table on the NFL board with Kroenke and, and, and Glazer and John Henry and, and all of these already. But I think it's also important to, to factor that Stan Kroenke and Shard Khan had a falling out over the attempted purchase of the St. Louis Rams years ago. Um, and and then I don't think that's ever been forgotten. Obviously, he went on and bought the Jags instead, but that was you know something that that happened. And and I think if I'm not mistaken, Kroenke blocked Shard from from purchasing the controlling stake in in the Rams, um, and then obviously moved them to LA instead, and and, and off they went. And that was a, a different analogy. But it, it is something that that kind of struck me that I thought maybe would maybe doesn't play ball quite as much as we think with with the with the other owners it, just because of that because the NFL has always felt like a bit of an old boys club um and I and I think that there's maybe that kind of slight jar because of because of what happened there perhaps and and therefore maybe it is one of those where he was like no I won't back your scheme but as Peter says obviously the PPV thing went through um obviously there's there's questions over over project big picture and all of those things so um yeah i i like to think the answer is actually no i'd like to think the answer is they they wouldn't buy into this but i mean there was also you know there's also that always that thought of how many clubs have the financial capability to say no to something like this um i you know i i think psg have uh, stayed out of it because uh, they have the the World Cup to think about, and it would have been just too much of a mess. I, I think Bayern stayed out of it, and Dortmund did because their fans, you know, the fifty plus one, the backlash, it would have been just too much for the club to to suck up. Um, and I think that you, you look at the rest of the clubs and. Leipzig, a Sevilla, Porto, and I do question whether they were actually invited. Uh, much as I'd like to think this was a, a something done on merit, I I, 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 I somehow don't believe it, um, and I don't believe that that Florentino Perez has looked at those clubs and gone, "Yeah, they want to be part of my, I want them to be part of my network." I don't think so. Um, so, so I suppose it is how much financial capacity have you got to turn this down and the only teams that I think really would have PSG obviously and Bayern almost flayed by the fact that they were like the fans will just kill us so we just can't um so so that leaves the a question open I think I think one other thing as well I think if Ishai Khan was into this it come into football on the basis of trying to improve his revenues and and everything like that he wouldn't be investing in a club like Fulham I don't think um you know, I mean, as much as you know, Fulham have a very proud history. Then they're not at the top end of the of the football pyramid. I think we we all know that. And you know, when you if you're going into a Liverpool or a Manchester City, or well, not Manchester City per se, but uh, a, you know, a, a Manchester a, leg- a legacy club, a, le- a legacy club. What a dreadful word. Um, you know, there's a, there is a there is a big big difference there, and um, I, I I think that that also speaks for itself. And it's also worth pointing out that Shah Khan was one of the first to come out and criticise it. You know, there were conversations on Monday once America had woken up to the to the news and and that it was this was definitely happening, and you know, came out with a statement which was late Monday night our time. So, and then a lot of the other clubs followed suit the next day. So, um, you know, it's it's we can only we can only only, uh, only guess really. Yeah, I mean, the statement that Shahid Khan put on the website it didn't say too much that you wouldn't expect, but the, the sentence that is interesting, he said, the concept will not serve the game or our most important stakeholders, the generations of football fans here in England. I guess on one hand, I'm cynical because of everything that happened with with the ticket prices, the fact that Fulham voted for pay-per-view, which goes against the the... the 
the thing that you'd like to think that Shade Khan has always said he's a custodian of this football club. Um, but then some of those actions have gone against what you would think a custodian of a football club would do. But I think what probably makes you guys right is the fact that I think that Shahid is more PR savvy than those other owners that you mentioned. And I think Shade Khan would have known that this would get a negative reaction and therefore wouldn't have done it on that basis. Whether he actually would have done it because he didn't believe in the kind of like killing the game. I'm not sure he really cares that much about that, but he would have known the negative reaction that this was going to provide. And I think he has a PR team who are wise to what this reaction would have been. But as you say, Peter, the Glazers, FSG, I just think we're living in a bubble, a Zoom bubble, as I've seen it called in uh, several um, columns this week, that they just didn't realise what real fans thought. Well, Ed Woodward's PR guy was Neil Ashton. Like, if anyone should have been able to foresee this coming, it should have been him. Like, he's been involved in the game for donkeys. Like, as if he thought, yeah, this is a really good idea. And maybe he did. Maybe, sorry, maybe he did say to them, this is going to be an absolute shit show. and. And instead, they were just like, nah, be fine. Um, So, you know, there is that element of it that PR teams could have come out and been like, lads, this is really not going to go down well. And they've just gone, yeah, nah, be fine, though. In a a couple of weeks, the storm will will blow over and people will just get on with it. Um, And and I think that was kind of the attitude, to be honest. I think it was like, there is going to be a backlash. We'll just weather that. It's going to be rubbish for a bit. We'll weather it. And then eventually people, they might boycott even the first season of it. But eventually people will just start coming back. Um, and, and, and I think that's, it's a dangerous attitude, isn't it? Because it's almost certainly true. Mm. I, I think one of the key things was the fact that, you know, the gov- I don't think they would have countenanced on the government coming out so strongly against it. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think we saw that with Manchester City and there's been, you know, talk of how the Abu Dhabi government did not want some kind of diplomatic dispute with the British government over this. Um, and then suddenly it's taking on a whole new realm of, of problems that probably they didn't foresee. And you could, you could definitely say there's some naivety in that. But um, but again, it does come back to the, 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 the strength of the backlash because without that strength of the backlash, you don't get a response from, from the high levels. I think what I was pleasantly surprised by was the reaction of some in the media. I really thought that quite a lot of people in the kind of high, highest positions, I kind of think we always knew that maybe a Gary Neville would always come out swinging. But when the likes of kind of, you know, Amazon Prime doing a statement saying that they didn't endorse it. That was it. the wishy-washiest statement it, of all time, it, though. <laughs> it was wishy-washy, but you had Gary Lineker saying he'd never work on it. I was quite pleasantly surprised to see that negative reaction, even though people might have been cutting off their nose to spite their face down the line or costing themselves work in the future. And I think that kind of fan pressure coupled with media pressure created the perfect storm that eventually meant that it, it couldn't go through. And, and, and as Peter says, then when, st- when governments start getting involved, then you really do have a, a shit storm on your hands. Okay, uh, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to discuss Fulham's one or draw at European Super Club Arsenal. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. 
Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Part two of the Fulhamish podcast. It's Sammy here with Jack Collins. Hello, listeners. And Peter Ratzler. Hello, hello. So whilst Fulham um, got their credible draw um, at ESL Club Arsenal on Sunday, Peter, all of this news was actually breaking around us. I think it was Martin Siegler in the Times who kind of made the very first um, comment or, or, or the first leak that this was about to happen, which was at just after one. Fulham then kicked off against Arsenal at 1.30. This was all kind of breaking around us, but maybe us as Fulham fans weren't noticing because we were... Uh, severely engrossed in this game at the Emirates. I, I mean, it was torture, wasn't it? Fulham somehow got themselves in the lead and then we tried to hold on for 30 minutes and it very much wasn't Fulham managing the game. It was very much Fulham holding on for dear life by their fingernails. And in the end, in the 97th minute, it slipped and... We've talked about Wolves being a bitter pill to swallow, Villa being a really horrible one too, but... This just topped the lot, didn't it? They say things come in threes. Well, this was very much um, the, the final, what feels like nail in the coffin, but it certainly was the kind of final straw in terms of Fulham folding late. Yeah, it was really grim. Can I just say before we start, this game feels like an absolute lifetime ago. I know you just said it was when it was breaking on Sunday, but just drinking back, I've, I've, I've actually genuinely thought it was a Friday game or uh, early, <laughs> early Saturday, but it wasn't, was it? It happened at the same time. And yeah, as you say, I mean, talk about worst of the lot. I mean, that's that's the biggest kick in the teeth I think we've had in the, over these past three games. Similar sort of issue again with the collapsing late, and I know we'll talk about that, but um, it was a real blow and you could see it. I know we've seen it in the emotions. We've seen Lamina's tears and, you know, there's Parker rea- Parker's reaction after the Wolves goal with, uh, again, uh, Adama Traore's shot. Um, but this, this was, this was, a, this was a painful one. And, and you could see, I mean, Scott Parker afterwards, again, you know, he gets very passionate about, about refereeing decisions and, and the rules of the game sometimes. And he was very much unhappy with the offside, potential offside at the end, which by the letter of the law, I think, you know, to be honest, it's, it's a legitimate goal. I think there's probably a case to be made, but. Um, you know, I, it was felt a bit clutching when, especially when VAR had gone so much in Fulham's favour in, in the game. And um, yeah, I mean, and just the nature of that goal, the timing, I mean, seven minutes as well. I think that would have been more of a grievance for me. I don't know where the seven minutes came from, but um, Fulham just fell back on their own goal. It just collapsed um, too, too deep and, and ultimately were, were punished for it. Yeah. As I mentioned, ja- oh, sorry. Go on, crack on. As I mentioned, Jack, it really wasn't like Fulham got themselves in the lead and then were really able to kind of manage this game professionally. It was just hold on for dear life and, and pray. And, and that's not, 
I can see the tactics of like managing the game, keep it really tight, get a goal and then and see it out. Yes, you're always going to have the chasing team creating a chance or two, but it was relentless from Arsenal and Fulham really were panicking in the moment, weren't they? There was nothing cool or composed about what Fulham were doing. And, and we saw that later on with Loftus-Cheek's miscontrol and then Bobby Decker-Dover-Reed inexplicably letting it go out for a corner when just someone shouting, time Bobby, would probably have meant Fulham could have walked away with all three points. Yeah, uh, and this is the stuff that starts to go against you when you're panicking, right? This is this is what happens. These are the nature of things and, and we've seen it over the last three weeks in its kind of purest form, I think. Um, look, we were on the, the, the full time afterwards and I was on with uh, the Cooper brothers and it was almost just like, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. Um, it did feel a bit like all the comments were, were slating Bobby Reed, and I think Bobby Reed's been pretty good this season if I'm honest obviously it was a terrible terrible mistake to put it out for a corner and it's cost us in this game um but like on the whole he's worked incredibly hard like Ruben Loftus-Cheek's miscontrol was was awful in fact it was it was a terrible cameo and I've done a lot of defending of Loftus-Cheek on this podcast over the course of the year um I think he's got more stick than he's he's maybe deserved a little bit at times um but not in this case um I'm not sure what what he was doing you know when he came on I don't, I don't think he, he made a positive touch on the ball um it, it was really really poor and the weird thing is you know if we weren't in the situation we were and if it didn't play out the way we were if we went a point away at Arsenal you'd probably be like yeah not bad um but but it is and the fact that we've dropped four points now in two games we would be you know two points behind Burnley yeah albeit they'd have a game in hand sure but we'd be two points behind them three behind Brighton and it just felt you know, it just feels like these things are slipping away when when perhaps other teams have weirdly been dragged back into it. And we thought that Burnley and Brighton were probably good. You know, we thought they were probably safe. They've been dragged back in through a series of uh, of misfortunes of their own. We've picked up, you know, a couple of points. Newcastle have flown away from it. And as that happened, I think everyone was like, well, that's that then. But in, simultaneously, you've seen Burnley and Brighton drop. If we had picked up these points, we were two points behind Burnley. I feel I feel like Fulham would be like, hang on, we've got to win with a real shot here. We've got Burnley to play. Like there's there's a lot going on in, in this in this league that you'd imagine with six games to play, two points behind, you'd be like, we've got a real, real shot here. And and, and I think five points behind is still not impossible, but it's going to be very, very difficult. I guess this weekend will show us what Fulham have to play with. We've been talking about the fact that Fulham have been a game ahead, two games ahead in some cases for, for such a long time. Fulham don't have the game this weekend. We're going to be watching a lot of football with bated breath this weekend. I mean, we all probably accept that it's over, but you might as well stick on a game if there's a chance there's always still a one percent chance that Fulham could climb themselves out of it and and I guess when we go into next weekend's game against Chelsea this time next week we'll know exactly what we've got to play with here we've got these five games everyone's going to be pretty much on equal games and then we can analyze okay this is what Fulham have to do unlikely but this is what we have to do if we're going to have a chance yeah, I mean, those games in hand have been a real pain, haven't they? It makes it very, very difficult to to really know where you sit and and just also annoying when you're trying to work out past precedents and everything. And it's, uh, yeah, so it'd be nice to have that sort of clarity about what's coming in, in the weeks ahead. But, um, I, 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 you know, I, I agree with Jack in terms of how much we've been seeing missed opportunities all season. I think, I, I mean, we, you know, it's this isn't just related to the recent games. Obviously, these have been more painful. They're certainly the most painful of the campaign and how they sort of panned out, maybe West Ham uh, and the, the Panenka aside. Um, 
but you know it's a cumulative thing and it's it's consistently happened throughout throughout the season and and you do wonder you know I, I, you look at the squad and there there's no doubting the belief in that team and and the fight that they've shown and the fact they keep coming back and they're doing they're going toe to toe they're giving everything they've got you do wonder just the fact that they are so young um in terms of premier league experience in particular and how much that is now playing a part because it's in those moments in those real heat moments where the pressure's on, where things are won and lost, um, where you're holding on to a tight one nil advantage, that you need your your big your big players to stand up, your your voice is to shine through and you can be a fantastic player, you can you can do everything, but if if you're not equipped to 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 fight in that situation, then you know it's it becomes harder and it becomes harder when it consistently happens because you don't have a positive message to reinforce it. You don't have a positive example. So it, you know, I mean, I think a lot of Fulham fans probably felt that something was something was coming, and it, what they felt like that against Wolves certainly. And um, you know, it's it's difficult. And and as Jack said, you know, there would have it would have been a tight points gap. You know, I, with Burnley still to play, Burnley have, have had a poor season certainly by their standards. And you know, there's been talk. Obviously, they've got new ownership coming now, but there's always been a lot of talk about what Sean Dyche wants to do uh, at the end of this season. And yeah, maybe, maybe you could have. There, there could have been a swing there, but um, you know, this weekend's important. This weekend's important because if, if you know, even West Brom, of course, have a game in hand, and they could leapfrog Fulham and, and make things even more difficult. So, you know, it's 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 you know, it's it, everything as as has been said for a while. It's always it's all they're all must win games, but um, at least we'll have some clarity now on just exactly how much of a challenge it would be and how much of a miracle it would be if Fulham can get themselves out of it. Yeah, the games this weekend are of interest, really. Uh, West Brom have two games. They've played tonight. Maybe by the time you've listened to it, it might have happened uh, away at Leicester. And then on Sunday, they go to Villa to make up their two games on us. Um, Burnley travel to Wolves away, which you would say is a winnable game for Burnley, given how Wolves have been pretty poor recently. Even in the game against us where they did win, they were, they were pretty poor. And they only just beat a, a Sheffield United side. Speaking of Sheffield United, they host Brighton and they and uh, I guess another big one is Newcastle traveling to Liverpool. I think New- I think Newcastle are out of it. Like, I genuinely, I can't believe I'm saying this. I think Newcastle are out of it. I actually don't think they're out of it, Jack. That's the mad thing. I, if Fulham put together a run of wins, without Fulham putting together a run of wins, they're all out of it. But I actually think if Fulham do put... Or if West Brom put together a run of wins. <laughs> I think because of that Newcastle-Fulham game on the last game of the season, I think if Fulham pulled together a run of wins, and given the tough fixtures Newcastle have, I don't think they're 100% out of it. Okay, fair enough. That is a reasonable take. Very reasonable, in fact. But... Yeah, I mean, what, it's not much to analyse really here, Jack, but other than that, <laughs> but you'd say that that game Burnley against Wolves, actually, if there is one to keep an eye on, that probably is the one. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, it's, the, it's, the, it's the kind of joker in the pack, isn't it now? If Burnley continue their slide, that is, the, the I suppose, with, with Burnley to play, they're probably a, a, the team that Fulham can you know lock sights on if they can lock sights on anyone. But I think it's going to revolve around Fulham getting maybe three wins out of five, which is not impossible given the the caliber of fixtures that Fulham have remaining and the fact that Chelsea and Man United may well have European commitments in the middle of theirs. Obviously, Chelsea will be halfway through a European semi against Real Madrid when when Fulham play them. And if United qualify, Fulham will play them, I think, if I'm not mistaken, four days before the Europa League final. So, you know, it's not... 
impossible that those teams might be rotating. They might be, especially United, might be well safe within a Champions League place and looking for silverware. Um, you, you might see a heavy rotation there considering that Solskjaer has failed to rotate through through quite a lot this year and we've seen them drop off energy-wise uh, at certain points. Um, so, look, it's open for debate. But I think if if these teams around us, if Burnley win this weekend, if Brighton win this weekend, if West Brom win this weekend, if then then we we might have to, you know, we're going to have to pull ourselves a miracle to get out of it. And, and, and look, I'm an optimist by nature, but I think that might put the nail in my coffin if they all win this weekend. All right, we'll leave it there. And we'll be back in a second. Part three of the Fulhamish podcast is Sammy here with Peter and Jack. So on Sunday, Fulhamish's special documentary on the 2000-2001 champions under Jean Tigana is going to be released. You can listen advert free on the Athletic app or you can get it on your podcast app of choice. Uh, we've got some great names in there. Sean Davis, John Collins, Barry Hales, Kit Simons, all featured uh, in conjunction with the written piece that Peter did uh, last week in the Athletic, which you can read now if if you subscribe i'm really really excited to release it and get it out there into the world um obviously peter had done a lot of the legwork um with some of these interviews uh, and jack i know you're very jealous that um peter managed to have uh, 30 minutes with john collins yeah one of my all-time heroes um, i love john collins and obviously he wore collins 10 on the back of his shirt when i basically started like watching the club and when i well not started watching but the first zones i remember uh, of, of the club and he was part of that and then he got to introduce collins john which is the greatest moment i think in <laughs> fulham history um exit exit john collins enter collins john but yeah um one of those the players that i've always had you know an incredible soft source for he has he has links everywhere but uh, also i remember i think one of the first that videos i suppose i ever had was um the goals of the 98 world cup and he scored a penalty against brazil in the opening match for scotland um and so yeah it's always been one of those things i was like oh i love that guy absolutely love that guy so i'm jealous you got to you got to spend some time with him he's a lovely guy a really lovely guy and he speaks really well on that season as well it's quite clear that you know i mean after such a career that he's had um it left some really Powerful memories for him. Um, so really, really, really enjoyed his time at Fulham, and he, especially that season and working under John Tigana again, of course, after working under him in in France. So, uh, really lovely guy. So sorry, <laughs> sorry, I got to speak to him again, Jack. <laughs> one day, one day, back when we're in in real world, like, I might get to meet him. You never know your luck. But Sammy, you you do do a lovely job on these documentaries. I don't blow you know smoke up your ass very often, but you, you the last one, the unforgettable, um, was absolutely sensational. So I'm really excited to listen, actually. Oh, thank you very much, Jack. Check in the post, as they say. Um, one thing before we finish, um, we didn't talk about in the first part the potential sanctions um, of the Super League. I'd be interested to hear uh, what your thoughts are. Uh, I know there are a few optimistic fans out there who are looking at some kind of 30 point deduction for Arsenal might mean that Fulham are safe. Um, we could do a Barnsley last season in the championship where we're, we're saved by a, a points deduction and keep our place in the league. Um, Jack, what do you see the sanctions being for those clubs that did very much break away and I, I assume they've broken some rules um do you think there will be any punishment 
I don't know what rules they have actually broken. Um, that doesn't mean that there won't be punishments. Obviously, I think the sanctions have already started. And I actually think that the nature of the sanctions that we're already seeing are going to be the nature of what they are. I think there's going to be massive pushback from the Premier League who have already stripped uh, a lot of the big six executives of their positions on key stakeholding positions. There was a whole review into the Project Big Picture thing that basically was supposed to concede a few things to the top six clubs in order to like basically keep them happy that's going to be scrapped um there's i think there will be pushback in uefa about these champions league reforms um i think they're the sanctions we're going to see i mean i'm a bit conflicted on this i do think there's a level of you know when you look at ffp reductions and, and points deductions in that that the players and fans aren't the ones who cause that but i do also think that the players and fans don't kick back against FFP reductions in, in, in you know and punishments in the way that fans and players kicked back against this, um, w- which leaves in a slightly murky ballpark as to you know where the punishments should lie. Um, the, I, I understand the calls for point, points deductions. I think that when you someone made a point and said, look, if one club goes into administration, they get a points deduction. What's the plan for trying to administrate eighty six clubs? Um, and, and I think that there's a point to be made with that. But I, I also am I'm reticent to believe that they'll do it. Um, and I, I think it is going to be sanctions at executive level that we really see here. I mean, Peter, a 20 point deduction for Arsenal. Um, they would have a game in hand, but Fulham would climb out of the relegation zone. Um, it, you, and Arsenal's fit, running is not the easiest, as they say. So, I mean, things I'd love to see is that it's not going to happen, but I would love to see it. <laughs> We'd love to see it. I think similar to Jack, really, I, I'm there's two sides of it. There's what I think should happen and then what's probably going to happen. And I think the bottom line is the Premier League are not going to want to hit back too hard because, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, cut your nose to spite your face a little bit in that the, the big six are very important to the Premier League and the broadcast revenues and, and all of that side of things. And, and it just means that they probably will, will peddle the argument about focusing on the executives and targeting the individuals behind it. But as Jack says, you know, what is the difference to a team going into administration and suffering a points deduction? You know, they brought the game into disrepute. They brought the Premier League into disrepute. Um, for me, they should have a points deduction. And I'm, I'm not just saying that because, of, you know, the Fulham perspective and you say, oh, maybe, maybe they could. They're not going to get a 20 points point deduction. No, it, would, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be that extreme. But even if they did, I think they would probably do it for next season. Um, but I, I really, there has to be some kind of punishment for it. I just, I cannot see how you can come, you can do something like this jeopardize the entire pyramid in fact jeopardize the game itself in a way by having to break away from everything um and just get away with it really i mean you can you can you can dismiss the people behind it you can target the individuals behind it but it has to be a precedent like it has to like there has to be a deterrent like you, you can't <laughs> i just yeah i mean i think from a european side it's important in particular um uefa have been absolutely shafted um in terms of wanting to put through these reforms to please these groups of players. Um, those reforms should be cycled back. The coefficient slots um, should be should be binned. They're horrible anyway. They shouldn't really be there in the first place. And, um, but also, I, 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 w- I would, you would think there would be some kind of European ban, at least for a season. Um, I mean, there is, in the case of financial mismanagement, um, that is on the table. But as Jack says, what laws, what rules have they specifically broken? And that's where it will break down and that's where it becomes murky. And, and realistically, as much as the other 14 clubs will be angry, and I'm sure the ones in the vicinity of the top six, the ones pushing into that bracket, West Ham, Everton, Leicester, 
will really want to push for some kind of point deduction because it benefits them. Um, I, I just can't. I just don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, there's been reports come out this morning that UEFA actually don't really have the power to sanction people and coming out of a, a Spanish court and that even if the UEFA disciplinary committee decided to, which they could, they they are the only people that basically could sanction them, that the court for arbitration for sport could, could overturn it. Um, I don't think we're going to see anything this season. No. I think this is going to rumble yeah. on. And then, then you, you move it on to a point where you say, well, can rules be put in place where there is yeah. a punishment mechanism? Well, this is it. There, there's talk of a binding agreement that they can't join a competition that's not ratified already by the FA, as in it would have to be a UEFA competition or a FIFA competition for clubs to join it. And if they did, that would be a binding, basically this would be a binding legal contract. Um, that's, I think that's what's being talked about right now. And that, that makes sense, at least as a future kind of deterrent to being able mm. to break off from this. I guess, Jack, one extra dangling carrot. If all of the English clubs in the top six are banned from European competition next season, it will obviously go down the uh, the Premier League. And, and with a UEFA Conference League launching potentially next season, not only could safety be achieved by five wins, but maybe an unlikely spot into the new competition. And now, wouldn't that be a glorious end to the season that we could all get on board we with? We could all get on board with that, Sammy. I'm, I'm in. I'm in. Sold. Sold you've made a sale (laughs) (laughs) all right well thank you for listening um today a bit of a weird one with kind of fulham not having a game in 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 the weekend but everyone else having one it feels like an international break but it's very much not at least there was at least there was a lot to talk about (laughs) <laughs> yeah i mean without the super league we would have been struggling today so um yeah thank you uh fiorentino perez for saving the fulhamish podcast if little else today um we as i said will be releasing the special documentary on sunday about the 2000 2001 team and the next thursday myself jack and peter uh, should be back although everyone's moving house this week so who knows who's going to be on next thursday's podcast we've got uh, people not with internet in their houses all sorts of logistical problems to overcome next week so uh who the thursday club is next week you'll have to wait and find out um good luck boy both of you with your uh, upcoming moves this weekend and uh, yeah thanks for your other podcast be to thank you no thank you sammy thank you very much and thanks for the nice words about my move and i'm sure i'll have internet via my phone at least from 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 sunny wandsworth so you're, <laughs> you're moving closer to the cottage it's, it's it, the the love the love affair continues between peter rutzler and <laughs> fulham football club it's pulling me closer, Sammy. It's pulling me closer. I'm looking forward to my walks down the Thames. And one man's moving further away, Jack Collins. I, uh, not very far, though. Just a, a couple of stops down the district line. I've always been west. So I'm just diving a little bit further west. It's um, oh. nothing to complain about. Over to, over to Hamwell. Uh, good luck with the move and thank you for today. Thank you very much, mate. I really appreciate it. All right. We will be back next Thursday. And don't forget about that documentary on Sunday. Have a good weekend. Hope you have some sunshine and maybe a barbecue. Come on, you whites. You whites. You wolves. (laughs) (laughs) I'm keeping that in. That's very good.